Be the right club today. Yes! Okay, everyone, uh, episode eight, we're delighted to have uh, Raymond Pryor uh, back on, joining us on the Be The Right Club Today podcast. Um, Raymond, I think you were on twice last season, last year, um, and Raymond's episodes were always a, a big hit. Um, a lot of great feedback, and I think you see the mental game is so important for everyone, and everyone loves really listening to that stuff. So, uh, Raymond, how you doing? Doing well. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. It's good to be back. Great to have you. Um, and what about uh, the Masters last week? How, what was your thoughts on that? Yeah, Hal and I were discussing a little bit before we jumped on uh, record here about um, there's a diverse leaderboard. If you looked at it the last couple of days where you had some older players, some younger players, certainly Sam Bennett as an amateur mixed in. You have some live players. You have some PGA Tour players. You have some past champions uh, Freddie Couples making the cut. Like it was a, it was a really cool experience to see that um, that level of uh, diversity in the leaderboard and not really knowing what's going to happen, particularly with all the delays and stuff. So, it's a funny thing. Every year, the Masters seems to live up to an impossible expectation of entertainment. It's funny how that happens. It is funny how it does that. A lot of drama surrounding the Masters this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, they talked about uh, slow play after the fact. They weren't really talking about it during the telecast. But uh, a lot of griping going on that I've been reading about. Yeah, I think how it's uh, um, the way the tours are set up, not just the men's tour, but the women's tours as well, is when you have that much money at stake uh, and that little margin for error, the tendency is for people to take more time not less time in between stuff, especially when you're coming down on the back nine and a putt going in or not going in is literally a hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think it's far more likely that people are going to be leaning toward reading something again, checking their line again, etc., and taking extra practice swings and, and double checking everything than, uh, than not. And certainly there are some players who play more quickly despite those circumstances, but I think the default reaction from most people is going to be go slower. doesn't necessarily mean it's the most effective uh, approach to that level of stakes, but I think if you create that level of environment, that competitive environment with that small margin for error and that high of financial stakes, um, it's going to slow things down rather than speed things up. Well, uh, Augusta is on a fine line anyway. Everything that happens at Augusta is magnified, it seems like. And, you know, it's funny, when I was reading this, I never read where John Rahm was complaining about the slow play. It was everybody else that finished second or worse that complained about the slow play. And, uh, you know, to me, you just got to buck up a little bit and do your job, you know. And I think, you know, this is why I'm asking you this, Raymond. It sounds like an excuse as to why I didn't play better than I did. Would you interpret it that way? I think I'd want to talk to the player about it um, in a little bit more depth, but I could see people using it as an excuse. I could also see people seeing it as a reason. I know a lot of players who 
not just subjectively, but objectively play better, playing faster. They, they move at a little bit of a faster rhythm than other players do. And when you're at Augusta and in a major, things t- rounds tend to be longer, not shorter. And then I don't see the fans complaining about slow play at Augusta because if you told fans that you were going to get a five-and-a-half or six-hour round of golf watching the, you know, the final round at Augusta, I don't know how many of people would complain about that. Players might, though. Um, I do think for some players it might be an excuse. For some, it might be a bit of a reason and a, a legitimate um, concern. And before I would guess at a player's uh, motivations behind it, I would want to learn more about it. You know, if I'm a really fast player, I would want the tour to enforce the pace of play, uh, especially in a major, because that gives me the advantage when most people are going to have the tendency to want to slow down and be more deliberate. Um, So I could see it going both ways for sure. Well, they never have really enforced slow play very much. So to expect that to take place is, uh, is maybe lofty expectations. But, you know, the truth of the matter is those guys that finished second, third, and fourth, their time to win the Masters was right then. So they had to figure out a way to deal with it. I mean, you can't just say, well, that's my excuse and I'm walking away from it. you you got to figure out how to make it work, and you've got to figure out how to make people play at your pace. And here's my, my problem with slow play. A fast player can't speed them up, but a slow player can make the fast player pay at his play at his pace now that being said you still got to get it done if you're right there you got a chance to win you got to figure out a way to get it done yeah there's a level of adaptability that is required to perform under a variety of circumstances and you are absolutely correct it is much easier for a slow player to slow down fast players than it is for faster players to speed up slower players just based on how things are enforced um and also, you know, in order for a faster player to speed up a slower player, he's going to have to get the group on the clock or and also risk, um, you know, a penalty as well, which is a lot to ask somebody just to get somebody to move forward. Well, here's the difficult part about that too, Raymond. I was a fast player, and every time I got on the clock, the fast player got faster and the slow player didn't speed up. So the fast player assumed the responsibility of being on the clock and trying to get us caught up. The slow player rarely sped up. And so with all that being said, if you're coaching somebody, to me, you've got to help them understand there's no solution to this problem other than you learning how to deal with it. I really don't see another way. Yeah, if it's one of the built-in constraints of performance, and again, not something that the PGA Tour or the Masters is going to really um, strictly regulate, then it is up to the faster player. That is, your current reality is that, in the same way that if you were playing in the NFL and you're a defensive back, the rules are legislated to make your job way harder than it is for an offensive player, in which case that you've got to figure out how to, uh, to manage that effectively, which isn't necessarily an easy task. Well, there's one more thing that needs to be added here. If you expect it to be fair, then you need to pick something else. I mean, sports doesn't have to be fair. (laughs) And I think we all want life to be fair. And it's not. Is it? No, it's rarely fair. Uh, And fair is a very subjective assessment of most things in our lives. 
Um, but sport, what it's designed to do is try to create an even playing field, not a fair playing field. An e even playing field is we're all playing under the same rules, in theory, uh, and we all have the same competitive restraints and restrictions. And then it's up to, well, who can figure out how to perform best within those? And that is not a fair setup. Even means we all start roughly the same starting line. Fair would be we all get to the same turn at the same time, but that's not how it works. Um, right. Sports specifically designed to have people who deal with those types of challenges better, they get the advantage. And I think uh, what you're alluding to is if we are expecting fairness or complaining about things when they are unfair, it's actually more counterproductive than it is productive for us to be able to deal with those circumstances. That's exactly what I'm alluding to. Uh, you know, every time I allowed myself to feel sorry for myself and felt like I was disadvantaged, I was beat from the moment I allowed that to happen. And, you know, as I don't know whether you want to call it maturity, age, whatever it is, I see that now clearly. And, you know, would certainly try to coach someone around feeling that way, you know. Spin it to where you can deal with whatever you think is unfair and do it as rapidly as you can so that you have a chance. Uh, otherwise, you know, you're just going to mar yourself in sympathy, you know. And, uh, what did that look like for you, How, when you were playing and you might have found yourself, um, you know, playing a little bit of woe is me rather than dealing with your current reality as it really was, which is oftentimes unfair, where maybe we do have some advantage unfairly, or maybe we're at a disadvantage unfairly. You know, how did you, um, how did you work your way through those? Well, sometimes I didn't, uh, sometimes I was able to, uh, you know, I think it, it I'm not sure that I can actually put my finger on how I got through it when I did. Uh, let's use this last weekend as an example. Uh, John Rahm four-putted the first hole. Woe is me, four-putt the first hole. I guess I'm out of the golf tournament. No, not quite. Then we could even take that a step further. He got disadvantaged with the weather the first day or two. You know, oh my goodness. I'm so on the wrong end of the weather. I can't imagine how many times I heard that when I was playing. So John Rahm overcame every bit of that. He figured out a way to make it all okay in his head so that he wasn't disadvantaged. And maybe that comes right down to fight. I mean, he looked like a bulldog to me. You know, I can tell you this from past experience. The hardest people to beat in circumstances like that are the Spaniards. They go down with the ship. And, uh, you know, the Sea of Cortez and Hernandez burned the ships. We're going down. And that's my impression of all the Spaniards when it comes right down to it. Uh, he looked the toughest. He thought the best. He played the smartest golf. He hit the right shots. I mean, I watched the whole thing. He deserved to win the golf tournament. He played the best. And what you're alluding to uh, from a psychological standpoint and what our research tells us, how is um, people who are really resilient, really gritty, that have that dog in the fight, they don't talk themselves out of anything until they're actually out of it. So making a bogey on the, a double bogey on the first hole of a 
72 hole tournament, it's not that they are happy about it, but they are accepting of like, all right, well that happened, but that doesn't mean, and then fill in whatever long-term explanation about the tournament that I'm screwed, that I shouldn't, you know, that I'm disadvantaged or whatever. It's just a bump. It's a molehill without becoming a mountain. And we find that people who don't make long-term conclusions about short-term events tend to be very resilient people for the simple fact is they're not talking themselves out of something before it actually happens. And whether you're on the wrong side of the draw, quote-unquote, or whether you make an early mistake or get off to a slow start, if we don't talk ourselves out of the things that we're trying to pursue before we actually get them, it gives us very good reason to stay resilient, to keep fighting, to have that dog-like mentality um, in it. And that begins with what we tell ourselves often about the things that happen to us and about us. And if it is a cultural thing in Spain not to talk yourself out of success or failure before you get there, it would make sense to me that you would see that pattern pretty regularly in a lot of the tour players that you interacted with. And certainly John Rahm has alluded in his press conference and his um, post-tournament talk about how much previous generations of Spanish players have influenced his mentality, his game in general, his short game. Uh, and there's a lot of really good examples of some really resilient Spanish players throughout the history of the game, for sure. Well, I mean, that four putt didn't do anything but poke the tiger. <laughs> it, I mean, it just woke him up. And, you know, if, if more guys, for everybody that's out there listening, if more guys could put it in that frame instead of, you know, now my heel's a lot harder to climb, uh, I think they'd perform at a higher rate. What do you think, Jamie? I thought uh, John Ram was, was unbelievable. Um, it was interesting to have him and Kepka and uh, that final pairing because everyone felt that Kepka was maybe a guy that wouldn't maybe get flustered by John Ram or maybe not flustered is the right word but he wouldn't back down to him but I don't know what your thoughts Hal were on Kepka in that final round he just uh, he just seemed to flitter, flitter away a few shots and lose a little bit of spark well I think he got frustrated and I think uh, you know he alluded to slow play and that Ram was going to the bathroom and you know, I, this is stuff that I've read. I don't know whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent. But, you know, to me, he wasn't playing nearly as well as, you know, they built it up like he hadn't missed any shots and everything else. And, uh, you know, he was playing wonderful. And it didn't really look like that after it got to the weekend. And, uh, you know, he drove it pretty poorly. Uh, and... I think he was just frustrated with his game and he saw everything that could possibly be wrong as working against him, basically. And because of the LIV and the tour, you know, at odds, I think there was a lot of pressure. Uh, and I think Kepka might have felt like he was carrying the torch, so to speak. Um, of course, I think Rob felt like he was carrying the torch too. So it's just a lot of... Uh, there was drama everywhere. Yeah, Raymond, what's uh, we'll get the expert opinion here. What's the uh, what are your thought? Like a guy like Kepka is a really interesting case. I know you maybe don't want to speak directly about him, um, but a player that maybe because he he kind of on that full swing documentary was basically insinuating that he felt he was at the end of his career uh, or he was injured and he was struggling a lot. 
Um, so it has been interesting these last couple of weeks to see a turnaround like that. Um, to all of a sudden he's gone from thinking his career's done, join Liv, to now he's contending in a major again. So from a psychology standpoint, what can you say to that or a situation like that if you don't want to speak about Kepka directly? Yeah, I don't want to guess at any one person's yeah. uh, psychology that's a little bit reckless and unethical, but I, I can f- try to frame this conversation in terms of just the stability of confidence. So if we think about confidence, I think a really functional definition of stable confidence is permission to execute your skills freely, or we might just say play freely and pursuing the outcomes you want without a guarantee. Now, unstable confidence, again, these sources are not bad sources of confidence. There's they can be very helpful. It's rather their stability of them. Past success, even being a four-time major champion, 10-time major champion, etc., is an unstable source of confidence because it doesn't count when you go tee it up the next time. So for someone like Brooks Kepler, it is not a surprise to me that he was the most confident player on the world while he was winning at a clip that could keep up and maintain that stability of confidence. Then you throw in an injury where now his body is not functioning in the way that he wants to. And we know through decades of research that one of the most destabilizing forms or destabilizing events for uh, confidence is injury. Because you have somebody who's been able to have their body perform on command-ish and then now it can't. That is a disruptive event for people and it is a significant blow to your confidence if it is particularly built on past success as a predictor of future success because now that guarantee cannot be maintained, right? So it is not surprised to me that his confidence was through the roof for quite many years and he was the best player in majors for a really long time. Also not a surprise that he may have experienced a significant lapse in confidence to the point where you start questioning, is this something I even want to do or I'm going to be able to do? Um, and then if then things start performing better, like his body is healing and he starts performing better, you're going to have an, a, an influx in confidence yeah. where any player who is building confidence based on past results, being able to predict future results is, again, it's not that it's bad, it's that it's unstable because mm-hmm. the future can never be guaranteed. And so what we tend to find with people who build their confidence off of less stable sources, past successes, being able to predict future ones. In the macro level, that's, well, I've won tournaments in the past, that therefore I feel like I can win them in the future. Or I've been successful in the past, therefore I can be successful in the future. In the micro level, that's, well, I just hit a good shot, so that means I should be able to hit another one. Again, not a bad formula, but very unstable because typically what happens is, well, first of all, what happens if you don't hit a very good shot? Now you don't have permission to hit another good one. And then what happens is if you hit a good one or you're standing over one, now you're starting to put pressure on yourself to produce an uncontrollable outcome to create an internal feeling of confidence, which means you tend to put more pressure on yourself to hit a good shot rather than just trying to hit a good shot for the sake of hitting a good shot. And then your likelihood of executing well goes down. And then you put more pressure on yourself on the next shot and this trap loop gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And what opens that up and makes confidence more stable is taking the need for an outcome to validate how you feel about your performance out of the equation, which is the opposite of how we typically learn confidence growing up. We typically learn that perform well equals go feel confident. 
And again, it's not that that's wrong. It's just super unstable. What we find with people with really stable confidence, and that is their confidence does not deviate very much with success or failure, or and it's applicable through a variety of different competitive conditions, is that it's about their relationship with failure, not about their relationship with success. And when they are very accepting of the possibility of failure, they are not trying to protect themselves from it while they are trying to pursue what becomes successful. And it's only a matter of time before that becomes exposed for everybody. Sometimes it's you just won a major tournament. You step up on the tee the next week and you go, "Uh uh-oh, that doesn't count for anything anymore. And now you know it. Other times it's I haven't played well in a really long time. How the heck am I going to figure this out? And it becomes exposed then. And so for us, it's really important for us if we're trying to stabilize confidence, particularly under pressure, it's coming out unless we address our relationship with both success and failure um, away from the course, which is kind of a process in psychology we call front loading, which is I've thought about this before I get there so that I'm not having an existential conversation with myself and trying to solve that existential crisis with my actual golf game, which nobody's so good at golf that it can solve our existential crises, essentially. (laughs) Which is a very long-winded way for saying the more we remove results as a requirement to be confident, the more stable our confidence becomes. So for someone like Brooks, my hope is that he's doing some inner work where the need to win or the requirement to win does not become a requirement for him deciding how he wants his career to ultimately go or Mm -hmm. dictate how he's playing at the times when he's trying to win golf tournaments because that will free him up to be able to execute his skills and pursue the results he wants without needing to multitask with I need to live up to past success or I need to validate future success or I have to prove that the live tour is you know a viable tour etc because ultimately what happens is now you're not just playing golf you're multitasking with a bunch of stuff that isn't actually relevant to what you're doing in the moment. So, I don't even know what to say after all that. That was above above my pay grade right there. But anyway, (laughs) I guess one of the things that I, I mean, I see most of what you were saying was you want people to be like this, which I saw a lot of that out there. I actually saw less passion in this Masters than I've seen in a long time. I don't know if either one of y'all would agree with me. But uh, it looked like everybody was pretty smooth in their delivery. I didn't see much fist bumping. I didn't see much of anything, really. It was just playing golf. <laughs> was I looking at a different telecast than y'all were looking at? No, I think you're I, – two things, Hal. To be very clear, I'm not trying to get people to be robots and be just flatlined the whole time. There's something to be said about how emotion can help it indeed drive our performance – But when our emotional state, we might even just say state of confidence, is dependent upon outcomes, that's what makes it quite erratic. Because if it's good, sometimes it can get too high. Or if it's bad, we drop too low. And, you know, there's this space in between where we can operate but not be robots. And what I think you're seeing is a larger trend, um, Hal, of we are learning very much the value of composure where even when you had a great shot, if your emotional state gets too high and you can't rein it back before your next shot, your previous success starts to predict future failure. And at the same time, 
you um, you know have a poor hole and you can't get back to you know we might say neutral although it's never really neutral before you go play your next shot then again your past shots are now infecting the the present and future of your performance and there's about a bazillion research studies in every single performance type including golf that shows that this composure state is where we most efficiently execute our skills and so you might see this trend of people being quote unquote less emotional on the course but i also think when you're seeing people in contention those are the people that week who are more composed for whatever reasons that week if you were watching the earlier groups where people are really struggling to find the bottom of the hole you might not see that same level of composure um week in and week out you know i have the privilege of being kind of behind the scenes sometimes and what you see on the telecast in the afternoon isn't necessarily a reflection of how everybody that week is experiencing that same golf tournament. Well, I'm certain of that. I lived that life for a long yeah, time. So I, I know, I know that what you're saying is the truth. I, you know, I'm just, I, I, you know, of late tiger is the basis of what we think because he's been the best in the last 20 years, basically. Yeah. And there's not a more passionate guy when he's playing good than Tiger Woods. And he's not afraid to show it by any means. Yeah. And he was able to corral it uh, and work effectively with it. Uh, and I'd be curious to know what you think about that, because is he an outlier or is he – what do you think he was in that regard? Well, I think he is an outlier in that he, in one way or another, and it's, you know, if you're kind of digging into Tiger's passing, and I don't want to try to dig into his psychology, that's, again, unethical and reckless. But in one way or another, he learned to develop the ability to express emotion and bring it back to whatever baseline was for him. And you played alongside, right. you knew this, where he's fist pumping like crazy. He is jacked up but then he is able to compose himself and be present by the time that next shot happens. So I would right. never say that passion isn't a good thing in sport. Again, energy and emotion drive very much our performance. We know this for sure. But if we can't bring it to a functional level, then two things have to happen. You have to either learn to be able to express emotion at a super high level and quickly and effectively bring it back down to a space where you can execute freely. Or you've got to stay very close to this baseline level so that you're not moving past it too far. And both can be very effective. There are a bazillion people in the history of sports that like Tiger, high levels of emotion and are able to effectively bring it back down. There are also a bazillion people through the history of high performance that maintain this very even keel level. You know, you might think of like a Dustin Johnson type where, you know, he kind of seems like nothing ever moves him off of it at all. And other time, people like Tiger and um, who can come very high and then bring it back down. People use Tiger as a frame of reference naturally because he's arguably the best ever to play the game. So it's not surprising to me that many people are trying to work off of the model that he created. Nothing wrong with that. It'd just be important for people to pay attention to what works best for you. For me personally, I if my emotions get way up here this high, even though I know how to bring them down quickly, that's still not the most efficient um, means for me to be able to stay in control of myself and my performance. But for other people, it might be very different. Well, along those lines, I think that's great for a kid out there to understand that, you know, 
uh, kind of what they need to do, uh, figure out who they are, what works best for them, and try to fit that mold, whatever that is. Yeah, I think if, as it, for young golfers, paying attention to what the best in the game do is invaluable learning. However, just adopting it just because they do it and trying to replicate it perfectly might not be this, the best fit for you. But ultimately, paying attention to what the best people in the world do does provide a nice uh, reference point for moving in that direction. This episode is brought to you by Holderness and Borden. Let's talk about their polo shirts for a second. The fit and fabrics are one of my favorites out there, but Holdness and Born really changed the game with the collar on their shirts. You can really spot a Holdness and Born collar. It has premium interfacing, sewn in collar stays, and an English cut that is modern but not too aggressive. Ultimately, what does that all mean? It means you look more polished and more put together. A great collar can frame your face and give you great posture. A great collar also stays sharp, especially in the heat of the summer as you sweat or maybe you're sweating over those nervy six-footers. Check them out at hbgolf.com and use code HSUTTON15 for 15% off your next order. Let's get into your book. It's coming out real soon, isn't it? It is. Uh, Golf Beneath the Surface is the title. Um, it'll be out, I think, May 9th is the release date. It's available for pre-order on Amazon or wherever you get books now. And it is um, what I'm hoping to be a updated and more thorough exploration of the psychology behind golf. That is, um, you know, building off of what's already been established, but um, in a way that is a little bit more supported by what we know empirically. So, I've been looking at it, reading it. It's pretty pretty deep in some places. Uh, awareness, that's a big part of it. Why don't, why don't you break the book down a little bit? And from your perspective, uh, you know, habits is another big portion of it. Uh Let's help the, the audience out there understand some of the high points of the book so that they can uh, get passionate about getting a hold of Amazon and getting that book ordered. Sure. That'd be great. So before I break down the book, I'll, I'll just touch on your point. It is a more comprehensive and deeper understanding of golf psychology than I'm going to argue anything on the market currently. The reason for that, I would Hal, agree. Yeah, and the reason for that, Hal, is because when we really understand mechanistically our psychology in the same way that you would really understand mechanistically the golf swing, it's that comprehensive understanding that allows you to simplify in real time. The vast majority of people really struggle with their psychology as it relates to performance in large part because they don't understand it very well. My hope is that people are going to read this book, and there's nothing in this book me telling them how to think or what to do in any way. It's me helping them understand how your brain works and the strongest psychological predictors of long-term growth and performance under pressure. So it is more in-depth for the reason being when the reader's done with it, I want them to be an expert on their own psychology so they're not trying to use their golf swing to try to create confidence or they're not trying to 
play mind games with themselves to try to make them feel something that they're not necessarily feeling so that they actually understand what's happening. Because with that, that depth of understanding allows you to make adjustments in real time so that you know where you want to be and how you want to get there. That would be the difference between my book and probably the vast majority of what's available right now. That being said, the book has four sections in it. The first section is entitled Your Brain. It is a, um, a basic and fundamental understanding of just how our brain operates in kind of two different sections. This is really important because if you don't understand how your brain works fundamentally, and I'm not talking a deep neuroscientist understanding or a neurologist understanding of the brain, but some basic functioning in the same way that if you need to understand the basics of the golf swing in order to help move things along, if you have the basic understanding of how your brain operates, you can start to parse out what it is you're experiencing more accurately and why. For example, if you understand how your brain works, you know the difference between nerves and anxiety. Those two things are not the same. They feel similar to us. They are not. And they produce two different types of golf swings. Hence why it's really important to understand how your brain is operating. So in that section, I will just kind of detail some of the basic parts of our brain and how they're operating and why we do certain things based on how they're designed. In the next section, as you alluded to, is awareness. The reason there's such a long section on awareness, and by long, I mean I devote a full section to it, is because awareness is the first line of information processing for everything we do. If we are not aware of something, we generally don't do anything about it, or what we do might be maladaptive, it might be really adaptive, and the type of awareness we bring to anything often determines how flexible we can be within that. And so in that section, I detail how we build a mindful awareness, which is a super flexible and super robust level of awareness that allows us access to the present moment. And that level of awareness works with how our brain actually learns, which is really important because the next two sections are habits, which is us paying attention to what we do and what we are actually getting from them, which is the fastest way to behavior change whether that's a psychological behavior or an actual physical behavior. Without these understandings, how like getting a golf lesson is just a hit and hope strategy for many people because you don't understand how your brain is learning, which means you're not necessarily creating the conditions that help learn. Two, when you take it to the course, it makes it a lot more difficult to apply that information because now you're in two different triggering settings. And so if you're not paying mindful attention to that, it's really difficult to go, well, here's what I do on the range. Why am I not taking it to the golf course? And understanding how your brain works explains that gap that so many golfers experience. And then the last section of the book, I get into what's called our psychological framework. Psychological framework is a fancy way of saying the way you see yourself, the way you see the world, and the way you explain yourself within it. And what our psychological framework in determines what kind of behaviors we have, how they get reinforced, and essentially, the whole section is how we break down how to build stable confidence rather than relying on outcomes and being at the whip's end of, of the events and experiences of our life to tell us whether we should or shouldn't perform freely. And so in each section, they build upon each other in a way that when you get done, you'll understand how your brain works, have developed and know how to train the type of awareness that allows you to pay attention to what you're doing and what you're thinking in a way that you can actually be the master of your own psychology rather than trying to play mind games with yourself over however many holes. 
And as you alluded to within that, there is an awful lot of reference to a lot of research, which is the real expert in the book rather than just me telling people how to think. Well, so I've been reading the book and I'm not finished with it yet, but I've got to pick a time that is quiet and I'm really there. Uh, would that am, am I unusual in that, or is that would you say that's? Uh, I, I'm I'm really wanting to understand what you've got in here is the reason. So, uh, I would say if you're you think I'm reading, unusual in that? I mean, no, I think if you're reading any book, having an environment that allows you to be actually be focused on what you're reading and try to encode that information is super helpful. I encourage people who pick up the book to write in the margins, highlight stuff as necessary, like make it a, a personal reference for yourself. And whether you're reading it on the train or on a plane on the way to work trip or to a golf tournament, or whether you're sitting in your study in the quietude of your own home, whatever. My personal mission right now is to just bring an updated and more comprehensive understanding of our psychology to the everyday golfer, as well as professional players. Um, because there's some really important new stuff that we understand in the last couple of decades that is far more powerful and far more effective than just trying to stay positive or just not think on the golf course, which if you understand how your brain works, you understand is a fool's errand. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, yeah. staying positive, you know, <laughs> my dad used to say, just believe in it. You know, it's much right. deeper than that. And one of the things that I was going to add to this is every parent would really get a lot out of this in understanding their child that's yeah. trying to play this game or trying to play any sport for that matter. And uh, my dad never really understood how the brain worked. And uh, I think it would have helped him help me. And I want to make sure that everybody understands every parent wants to help their child. Yeah. We're all trying to help them. We're not trying to hurt them. Uh, sometimes it may come out that we're hurting them, but it wasn't the intention. And so I would encourage parents to read this book as well. Yeah. To your point, how I've never met a parent ever who wasn't well-intentioned with their child trying to help them be better, be more confident, grow and get better at golf. My hope is that this book will help inform their intention a little bit better so that how they are trying to help their kid might be more efficient. Whether that's yourself to yourself, to a coach, to a player, a parent, to a child, etc. Um, the more of a comprehensive understanding we have about our own psychology and how our brain works, the more efficient our help is toward other people. Right. Yeah. What do you think, Jamie? Uh, I wish I knew all this a few years ago when I was trying to play. <laughs> it's, um, it's so, it, you know, when I talk about, you know, I didn't really play at that high a level. I played some mini tour stuff, but, um, yeah, I didn't really understand. My performance was way different uh, in practice than it was in a tournament situation. And I didn't have really any understanding of why that would be the case. Um, and I think uh, when I was out there, you, there's so many good players out there, right? Like there's a lot of good players and a lot of amazing swings and a lot of ability. And I, I do I do find it fascinating what the separator is, right? Um, 
and how you reference a lot about you know for you for your separator which was jack and tiger compared to everyone else how they uh were so in tune to what worked for them um and i think that's i think that's an amazing thing especially i mean for you how we talked a little bit uh for you how maybe you can add to this is like i remember having that discussion with you when you first went on the tour and you said you looked originally you looked at a leaderboard and you saw that well if i was one shot better i would have made x amount but something deep down inside you said hey let's change that thinking and think you know what if i was one shot worse i would have been worse off and maybe raymond can highlight that i always wonder like where does that come from like deep down and how there where did that little thought come from hey we need to change this because a lot of people might not have that ability to maybe that's the awareness um a lot of people might not have the ability to think well what i'm doing right now is destructive let's change it yeah jamie you're so i'm glad you asked that question because so much of the book is about the exact process that you're asking about the first is being aware of that thought as a thought so yeah. we assume have this ability we in psychology a big fancy word is called metacognition which is a really uh, textbooky way of saying we can think about our thoughts so you can have a thought and then we can have thoughts about that thought and so we all have thoughts that just pop into mind pretty regularly we call these automatic thoughts they can be triggered by a bazillion different things looking at a leaderboard and going well if i had been one shot better i would have this and if i had been one shot worse it would have been this is a perfectly understandable thought to have if you're looking at a leaderboard and, and doing that math in your head. But if I'm aware of this thought as just a thought, then I can start thinking about it. Specifically, I can start asking myself, what are the natural consequences of me thinking about this in this way? And if the natural consequences are nothing good for me, then it becomes much easier for us to start to think about something differently because our direct experience is telling us there's a better option out there. We don't typically change our mind very well with our mind, meaning we don't think our way out of thinking about something in a certain way. You don't think your way out of anxiety. You don't think your way out of frustration. What happens is if we are aware, whoa, I'm thinking about this in a way that makes me feel super anxious. And then I also ask myself, what am I actually getting from this? And it's just a laundry list of things that are not helpful to me. Then it becomes, there's room, like quite literally what's happening in our brain is that it's moving that thought down the priority list. This is what we call the reward value. Reward value just means like how up the hierarchy that thought is in our brain. And it will literally move it down because it sees, I don't like this thought because it doesn't feel good and it doesn't do anything good for me. In the exact same way it doesn't take you long to figure out drinking sour milk isn't something that you want to do because it tastes crappy and you get nothing good from it. So we're using evidence from our direct experience to show us thinking this way is not very helpful for me in relationship to what I'm trying to do. But systematically, we can train this. Um, it's not complicated. It takes some work, but it's not complicated. But people also do this organically, right? Like if Hal has been... You know, the margin for error is tiny at the highest levels of golf. And if Hal's not paying attention to how he's thinking and how that's uh, moving him up or down, that margin for error on the leaderboard from tournament to tournament or how it's relation to his scorecard or his bank account or trying to win golf tournaments, if we're not paying attention to, when I think this way, 
the direct consequences move me farther from these things, then it becomes easy for us to just get stuck in these patterns because it feels like we're quote unquote doing something, even though we're getting the exact opposite. So the awareness plays in two areas. One, can I be aware of this thought? And two, can I also pay attention and be aware of what am I actually getting from thinking about it this way? As you um, had touched on earlier, Jamie, going from the range to the first tee, if your thought process changes from the range to the first tee, that tee shot's going to be very different, right? And so for most players, what happens is when you're on the driving range, stable confidence isn't required because there's no real consequences over there. If you then go to the first tee where consequences exist, but you can't bring the same amount of space based on how you're thinking about your first tee shot, it's going to be an anxiety-provoking experience. And if you're also not paying attention to that's what you're getting from the way you're thinking about it, just telling yourself think differently is a, an ineffective strategy for most people because there's no reason for them not to at, at the level of their brain. If I go, man, every time I think about this, I feel awful on the first tee. And what I end up doing is making a swing, trying to get this shot over with as fast as possible, which generally leads to me not making the motor pattern I'm looking for, making indirect contact, and having some really unpredictable golf shot. It's a little bit easier to clear some space to be able to think in a way that's different about it. But that awareness is the key component to that, because if I'm not aware of it to begin with, I'm stuck with it. And if I'm not aware of what it's actually doing for me in an objective way, I'm also not creating space for me to be able to move towards something better. Yeah. Ooh. Well, it was always easier for me to be objective when I wasn't in the moment. Yeah. If I were looking at it as if that was someone else doing it or it was, you know, past tense, it already had happened and I could reevaluate what went wrong. I was able to maybe be more honest with myself. You know, I, I we haven't touched on honesty, but I touch on it a lot with kids. You know, you can lie to me, you can lie to everybody else, but you better not lie to yourself. You know, uh, I, I'm sure I haven't gotten there yet, but somewhere in here there's something on honesty. <laughs> yeah, how when you get to the last section of that book, there is a... So one of the things about building stable confidence is that it's not about whether it's positive or negative. It's how close to truth it is. It's really difficult to have stable confidence if you're yo-yoing with the truth. Um, yeah. People who have really stable confidence are oriented toward what is objective and what is effective and what is honest because that allows them to deal with it as it is rather than having to weed through some subjective stuff. So... Um, the more, oftentimes people are dishonest with themselves, not because they're bad people, but because they're trying to protect their feelings. They're trying to avoid emotional discomfort. And again, I wouldn't judge anybody for doing that. Nobody likes feeling emotional discomfort. The downside with that being a habit or a pattern of thought is you're keeping yourself from dealing with things as they are. And it's really difficult to have stable confidence when you are trying to do something, but the priority really is trying to manage your trying to avoid emotional discomfort, which as you know how, if you're playing at the top levels of golf or even anywhere in a situation where results matter to us as human beings, there's some emotional discomfort involved. Absolutely. Well, 
very powerful stuff, Raymond. You know, last year when we had you on it, uh, we had you come down to the academy. I've I've always been moved with what you think. You you're at a level that few people understand. Uh, and you're right. The book is got a lot in it and I think the understanding of it will help every player understand themselves better and a path forward to a better player hopefully and uh, at least understanding their the way they think and uh, you know somewhere in there will become a better player probably because of it I would challenge always you. love having you on yeah, I appreciate it. And like I said, I, I would challenge anybody to read the book. It is going to be a little bit thicker, but I would challenge anybody to read the book and not find some value in it somewhere that is at a mechanistic level that allows them to simplify their performance in real time. Um, yeah. And with well, that, yeah, I'd like to say thanks for having me on again. I certainly good. know they're going to get a lot out of this book. <laughs> yeah, awesome. and, yeah uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, I Raymond. I appreciate um, you coming on. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I'll I'll include a link in the show notes uh, for those uh, on YouTube or the podcast. They can go to Amazon or wherever and uh, pre-order the book. I'm certainly looking forward to uh, spending some time figuring out my own uh, brain for better golf. But yeah, thanks so much, Raymond. Gentlemen, thanks for having me. Good to see you.